Welcome to ESAP's Global Economy Podcast. My name is Frederick Eriksson, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by my friend, Niklas Berit Lundblad. Niklas is one of those persons who is actually pretty difficult to pin down. I think he's best described as a polymath. He's a thinker and writer who is curious about technology, philosophy, and society. And he has a blog called Unpredictable Patterns and runs the Regulate Tech Podcast together with Richard Allen. He has degrees in law theoretical philosophy and a PhD in informatics. Previously, one of the top bosses at Google, he's now the global head of tech policy at Stripe. Niklas, you're very welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I hope you think that was a fair description of you. The alternative was actually to use your own Twitter presentation, which says, and excuse me if I'm having difficulties pronouncing this, but Yeta Heya Mykov Pasfe Yata Hey Fabtul Fabtul. Now, Nicholas, what is that? Those are the lines from the lyrics of a group called Fab Tool, where David Eugene Edwards, who is the lead singer in uh, epic bands like Woven Hand and 16 Horsepower, is singing about a future dystopic landscape in a way that's just beautiful. I can recommend anyone to just Google Fab Tool or go to, uh, I'm going to say Google, I, sh- I, I should commission for this, or go to YouTube and look up the video for Fab Tool. It's Gothic country, and it's a beautiful piece of music. Ah, Gothic country, I see. Well, the third alternative I had was actually to say that I don't know anyone reading as much as you do. So what have you read recently that everyone with an interest in technology, philosophy, and society should read? Oh, I'm actually spending this summer reading a lot of Kenneth Burke. So Kenneth Burke is this interesting poet, sociologist, philosopher, was active in, in California around the same time Herbert Simon and many of the other polymaths that sort of ended up creating artificial intelligence were active. And he's, he's writing a lot about, some, about sort of understanding human nature and human action in terms of uh, poetics and what he calls dramatics. So I'm, I'm digging into that a bit because I'm really fascinated by how effective we are at organizing our information in narratives and how helpful it is. And I've, I've come to think that narratives are the ultimate compression algorithm, that we sort of, we compress a lot of information in narratives. And I wanted to dig deep into this. And and, and Burke came up on one of the scans I did of the literature. So so I, 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 I promptly went and ordered a lot of books of him and I'm going to dig into those over over the summer. I, I really like them so far. All right, very good. Any Any particular book of him that you can recommend? I think the grammar of motives or the rhetoric of motives, both of those are really good. And then if you're, if you're into sort of a, a shorter introduction, they've collected some of his easiest work, easiest is the wrong term. I think some of his most comprehensive collections in a book called On Symbols and Society. Burke, much like you know many others at the time, like Ernst Cassirer, who you will be familiar with, uh, were fascinated by the symbolic nature of human thinking. And it's no accident that this fascination of symbolic thinking occurs at the same time that we start to do real computer programming. We start to sort of understand human thinking as a symbolic language that can be made the subject of a calculus. And and this is the first time we realize the old Leibnizian dream of a universal characteristic, a language that can be used to calculate all possible truths. And so there's there's a connection here between Leibniz, between his early dabblings in binary calculations, and the symbolic thinking in Cassirer, the computer programming languages of the time, and the way we're reimagining the us 
ourselves, human beings, as symbolic calculators. Also sounds a bit Jungian. If, I mean, sort of Jung talking about industrial revolution and sort of the, 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 the role of stories and narratives in order to shape human understanding of what was going to happen. Yes, and there's a deep connection back to Charles Peirce as well uh, and, and his sort of notion of a sign and how signs are the basics. And of course, via Peirce, you get back to Aristotle and the notion of representation and the signs. So, so there's, there's like this, this whole subset network of thoughts and ideas that, that uh, connect with the early computer age that I'm interested in right now. All right, very interesting. Thanks for the recommendation, Nicholas. So on to today's conversation. There are a few things I'd like to talk to you about, and they all actually center around the cultural freedom of speech online and how that culture gets strong impulses by governments that are pushing regulations that directly or indirectly forces digital platforms to censor more content. I often feel like I'm in a minority of one worrying about what is going on and what new regulations will do to our civil liberties. I'm also worried about some of the actions taken by platforms themselves, but I do have some greater sympathy for them as they are trying to experiment with ways to build new institutions and the institutions that may define the culture of online free expression in the future. So we'll come to this a little bit later, but I'd like to start with what governments are doing. So in Brussels now, we are discussing the Digital Services Act that the European Commission presented late last year, which sets out a couple of new behavioral regulations for social media platforms. Some of them existed previously for the big platforms, but there are some new stuff in there as well. A few weeks ago, the Commission presented new guidance on the Code of Practice on Disinformation, a code that has been around since 2018, I think, and that many social media platforms have voluntarily signed up to in the past. But now the Commission is pointing towards new regulations, or what they call co-regulations. The general trend in Brussels, national capitals, and in most other countries in the world is to get platforms to censor a lot, a lot more, not just to take down illegal content, but to censor content that is not deemed acceptable. So, Niklas, do you agree? Do you think this is the intention of new regulation regulations? And if not, what are the regulations aiming to achieve? Well, it's interesting. I think that in order to answer that question, we have to uncover what the actual mental model is behind a lot of these regulations. Both of the Code of Disinformation and the DSA and the Online Safety Act, there is at the heart of this one single mental model that is emerging, and it's the mental model of, of us as victims of information. And I think, I think I'm sort of exaggerating, but just a little bit here, because I think that there is this notion that, that we are being subjected to information that changes our minds and makes us do things that we would not want to do if we had not been subjected to that kind of information or that kind of content. And what politicians are trying, trying to do, and I think this is all well-intentioned, which doesn't make it less problematic, but we'll come back to that, is that they're trying to figure out ways in which they can make these encounters with content or the kind of information that we're subjected to affect us less and give us more liberty in how we relate to 
this content. And the easiest way of doing that is removing content that we fear is manipulating us in different ways. And it's present in a lot of the different legislations right now. And the, this mental model sort of surfaces everywhere. It's in the AI regulation as well, where, where we talk about subliminal information, for example, people being subjected subliminal. And that traces back to the 1950s and 60s and the fear that there would be subliminal advertising in movies and we would suddenly all go buy this brand of soda or this brand of toothpaste because we had been subjected to a, a split second image of that brand. Now, it turns out subliminal advertising doesn't work and people are much more resistant to that kind of, of manipulation than is usually thought. But I think that in order to sort of just start digging into your question, we have to get to that mental model. What is it that's actually happening here? What's the object of protection? And the object of protection is the single citizen encountering content or information online, being changed by it, manipulated by it into doing things they do not want to do, thinking things they do not want to think. That's the model we're starting from. And I think it's reasonable to question that model and ask if, if that is really what's going on. So what do you think is going on? I mean, I can give you a couple of examples from my own sort of impressions from engaging online with people, which is that in almost nine out of 10 cases, when I encounter someone with nasty views, they had those nasty views before they went online or before they became sort of part of Facebook or open up an online Twitter account, for instance. So it's, it's, it's not my impression sort of that people are innocent bystanders that suddenly get exposed to different views or efforts of manipulation by others. And suddenly they make these views their own views. They tend to sort of be a sort of ready, at least prepared, or at least they have some basis for thinking those particular views or having those opinions in the first place. Um, and I suppose that's true for, if you, even if you go into areas like advertising as well, that sort of what most of the research tends to show is that sort of the precon preconception or the preconceived views that individuals have are a lot more important than what they get exposed to sort of in media or in a movie or whatever yeah no i agree and i think there's there's a great book if you're interested in this stuff by a guy called hugo mercier who wrote a book called not born yesterday and he sort of catalogs in that book all of the research that seems to suggest that you are not radicalized online you're radicalized and then you go online to feed your radicalization which is not necessarily a good thing right so it's not as if if this is unproblematic but the actual views exist before you start accepting conspiracy theories you you're you're primed in some way to do this and in order to understand that we also need to go back to our fundamental model of man and ask, so what, what do we think is happening when man forms or man, man or woman forms their opinion? And I think this is the other thing that, that is not really articulated in the current debate. We are not rational individuals in the sense that we are disembodied and disconnected from evolution and make up our mind as rational calculating machines. Our reasons our reasoning capacity has evolved over time and it's evolved to fulfill very different purposes than the discerning of absolute truth. And there, I, there's another book, Julia Gallup, The Scout Mind, and I think you probably heard about this as well, uh, where she sort of suggests that there are two evolutionary things that reason was asked to do. The one was to scout and to find new things and find novelty and help us discover new things, which is absolutely essential for us to continue to develop and not stagnate. The other thing, she says, was the development of a soldier mind 
where reason was used to increase social cohesion and to make sure that we would that we would hold together as a group. So this group cohesion was fueled by the way we reasoned. I think if you if you think about that as the two main functions of reason, one is to keep the group together and the other is to seek novelty. Then you understand that you have a very different situation than if you're just having a model of man as a rational calculating machine. And I think a lot of the stuff that we see online and that troubles us is essentially the soldier mind at work. And we shouldn't be too surprised at the soldier mind gathering information that confirms earlier views or, you know, turning people into caricatures of their own prejudice. I think there is there is something there that we also have to adjust for. And it's not fixable by just removing that content. It's not fixable by just saying we have to make sure people don't encounter this kind of information. And then that makes it a much harder problem, but much more interesting and I think much more vital to solve. No, indeed. But I, I do get the impression, and of course this confirms what you were saying, that sort of when you talk to policymakers in, in different parts of, of the world, Europe, America, uh, or elsewhere that are working on new types of uh, regulations of content online that they even sort of I mean, what we've discussed right now i wouldn't say that it's it's very articulated but there seems to be sort of that there is an underlying switch here in the sense that we can manipulate our citizens in the sense that so if we are not exposing them to nasty political views well then we're not going to have we're not going to get surprises like the election of donald trump or um, uh, the Brexit referendum again. So it's even if it's not sort of an articulated thought that or an articulated intention that this is actually what they want to do. That seems to be sort of the underlying model or the underlying thinking that sort of had if if we had an alternative to switch the internet off, we wouldn't have had these nasty political surprises in the past. No, and I think. There are two kinds of baselines here. There's one that I think is rather innocuous, innocent, and well-intentioned, where the, the person looking at this piece of legislation or proposing it is essentially saying that citizens are wise. If they're not subjected to manipulation, they will make the right decisions. And the question then, of course, becomes, what is manipulation? And then you have to define a category, class of information as manipulation, and you outlaw that. And that's sort of the, I think that's the benign version of this. And then there's another version that has a much older lineage. And that is the, the version that says, look, we have to tell people the right things for them to make the right decisions. If they don't hear the right things and encounter the right kind of information, they're going to make the wrong decision. And this, this harks back all the way to Plato's noble lie. The idea is that you have to tell the citizens a story, a narrative that allows them to make the right decisions as the kinds of citizens I would like to have. It's sort of a shaping narrative. It's a shaping policy where you try to shape citizens into what you think they should be. And, and these two exist side by side. None of them is fully articulated. And sometimes you fall into over into the sort of the, the elitist paternalism of the latter, although you're trying to sort of stick with the first, where you just want to make sure people are free to be the citizens that they should be. And it all goes back to this fundamental flaw in, in the reasoning, which is that there is such a thing as an individual without any influences. 
there, you know, as an individual disconnected from any kind of influencing networks or opinions or mechanisms. And of course there isn't. We're caught up in tons of different influences the entire time. And we're listening to our friends and we're listening to stuff we read online and we read books and we hear things in podcasts. And all of this influences us all the time. The idea that there is such a thing as an unvarnished citizen or an unvarnished view is simply wrong. And I think that's that's one of the things that we, we have to, to really get to grips with. Because if we get to grips with that, we realize that the only way forward is actually to recreate and strengthen and reinvent the role of the citizen. To make it clear that you have the role to balance all, you have the responsibility to balance all of these different influences in your role as a citizen. It is up to you. And you carry an enormous personal responsibility here. Agency. You have tons of agency and you need to exercise it. So, I mean, another question that we we sometimes end up asking people when we have these discussions is, you know, what's a reasonable amount of time for somebody to spend being a citizen? What's your sort of, what's your citizen investment portfolio look like? How many hours do you invest in being a good citizen, learning about an issue, contributing to a public debate? How how do you deal with that? And I think, you know, I, I exaggerate again, but I think we could say that to a large extent, we have forgotten what it means to be a citizen and what it means to take that personal responsibility. And this is at the heart of a lot of the debate we have. And, and many politicians are reacting well-intentioned and you know, benignly to this, this forgotten role of the citizen by trying to recreate it from the outside without any individual responsibility and saying that we will project on you good citizenship by making sure that you're not manipulated or subjected to any information that deters you from being a good citizen. And that's where we end up trying to, to, to sort of almost paint a democracy on top of something that is not. That's very interesting. So the, the message here then, Nicholas, is basically we have a almost Rousseauan concept of man, the noble savage here, who is born free, in nature, innocent. And tweeted to death. Yeah. <laughs> and tweeted to death. <laughs> One tweet at a time. Indeed. So what is research saying about the capacity sort of of content moderation or, you know, in in different shapes and forms in achieving that Brosian sort of ideal of man? Do we know anything from research? I mean, I think sort of the most, at least most political scientists, if you talk to them, they would basically say that, well, you know, if you want to have a good explanation to the election of Donald Trump or Brexit or any other surprising outcome of electoral processes in the past years, they will point you to Facebook or sort of online media more generally. I'm sure there must be sort of lots of tons of other research that are at least helping us to have a more granular understanding about how these processes work and that many of these efforts to moderate content may not actually produce the type of outcomes that most people think. Yeah, there's a ton of really good research. And and it's not conclusive, but it's important to read. And I think that what you find is that uh, some of the research shows quite clearly that you're not getting polarization or populism through social media. There are some natural experiments in, in Italy. There are a couple of different studies on Facebook generally that suggest that what happens is that, that you have polarization offline that then goes online to deepen or reinforce it in different ways. 
this is also true for, for example, radicalism in, you know, radical Islam, radical Christianity, other kinds of groups. They, they do not go online and end up being radicalized. They are radicalized offline in different kinds of contexts. And then they seek to sustain the belief that they've acquired through seeking more information. And it can be through books as well as through the internet, of course. It's just sort of a natural function that once you once you acquire a belief or a faith, rather, uh, what happens is that you're trying to reinforce that faith. It's, it's why people would buy all of these small self-help books in the beginning of the 19th century, where you would sort of learn to be a better Christian and go through sort of all of these prayer books, etc., because you wanted to reinforce the identity that you were shaping and forming. And, and that kind of thing happens online and offline and everywhere. But the, the research is also quite clear, or I think it's increasingly clear that, that there's no single causal pattern that can explain why people sort of end up voting for a particular person or making a particular decision is rather a network of different influences that make up our minds. So we are not sort of, there's no single causal pattern here. And that's important because I think that that, that means that there's no single fix. You can't, there's nothing you can identify and say, okay, I'll remove this thing. And now people will make decisions freely. But that's still, that's sort of, if you think about it, that's, if somewhat simplified model that's behind a lot of the stuff that we're seeing today. Now, there's a pressure here from Facebook that if I remove it, people will just make rational decisions. Or there's a pressure here from, from the internet overall that if I just sort of lessen that a bit, then people will make rational decisions. That theory does not seem to be borne out by research anywhere. And then there's research that interestingly shows that if you show people only negative posts in social media, for example, or if you show them only positive posts, you can you can uh, impact their mood. And of course, that's true, because if you're only subjected to something that's quite negative and you're subjected to something that's quite positive, you are going to change your mood because the way you see the world will change. But I think that's that's research that that goes to show that the influence network that you're a part of, the balance in that network matters uh, a lot. So no conclusive research, I would say, but most of it seems to suggest that there's no simple causal pattern. There's no one thing you can remove in order to get to that, that sort of rational citizen that is, that is currently being thwarted from acting rationally because they're, they're, you know, they're using a social medium or something like that. Now, let us talk a little bit about policy methodology and what different regulations are doing I find it pretty interesting, if not striking, if you look at, for instance, the Digital Services Act. So this is an act which explicitly say that they don't want to go in and give a definition to what what is illegal content or what is legal content. It basically says that it doesn't want to see regulation that extends the concept of illegality to include perhaps harmful content or objectionable content. But still, you can see that sort of there is a clear pathway that they have in mind when they are conceiving these regulations, which is that they basically want the platforms to censor a lot more, even if what they censor, what they moderate, isn't illegal. And they usually do that by sort of dangling the threat of a very huge penalty, unless platforms aren't doing what 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 the regulators want them to do. And in that way, I think we are gradually moving sort of into a territory where it becomes very difficult for the regulator to keep a straight face and at the same time say that they don't want to 
trespass on online civil civil liberties or civil liberties more generally. But I think that's that's more broadly the direction we where we are going. Uh, would you agree? Well, I think there is a there is an interesting distinction in what you say that I think is absolutely essential to catch, and that is that there is such a thing as illegal content, and everyone agrees that illegal content well-defined, should be removed from any service as soon as uh, humanely possible and detected, sometimes even proactively. Just removing it is, is, is the right thing to do. And then you move from illegal content to this gray category of content that is considered harmful in some way. And that's the most problematic move from this piece of legislation. Because yes, there are pieces of content that are not illegal and they can be viewed as harmful, but we have to define what the harm is when we do that move. And you could argue that those also need to be dealt with. But there are two ways of dealing with that. One is to saying, well, we believe that you should deal with this private sector and that you should go away and think about how you define and how you work with harmful content. We're not going to sort of extend the category of illegal content. That creates a, an incentive for the private sector to go broad, to minimize, especially with the great fines that you mentioned, minimize the liability and the risk that they're exposing themselves to. The entire attack surface needs to be reduced. And so that's one path. The other path is to say, well, maybe what we should do is that we should have a discussion about what is illegal in our society. And maybe we need much more stuff to be illegal. And then we should have an open democratic debate about that and subject it to the kind of democratic debate and transparency that, that we have in politics in general when we make laws. And what I worry about is that the, the sheer amount of information out there and the sheer amount of shifts in what is considered harmful makes that impossible. And from that impossibility, a lot of people are drawing the conclusion that, well, then we just hand it over to the private sector because it's so hard to do. But if it's hard to do, it could also be a signal that there's something else going on here, that, that sort of the harmfulness concept is not as stable as you think. It is about something else happening. And that something else might be something that we can't solve through content moderation at scale in the way that we're trying to solve it now but we have to solve it in some other way by finding another way to deal with information and to deal with the authority of information online and one of the things i mean one of the things that happened with the internet early on dave weinberger gives about writes about this in his book too large to know too big to know and he says that for any fact there is a counterfact on the internet because the internet is a flat information surface it's completely flat and that's different from other information surfaces that we've had in our societies if you go to the offline world and you go to circa 20th century the u.s early press you go to philadelphia and the philadelphia inquirer had a big white skyscraper in the middle of philadelphia and it was called the tower of truth i mean that's the name of the press the home of the press in philadelphia at the time and that tower of truth provided an authority, a rugged landscape of authority, where you knew that if they published something, you could really you know, rely on that, or you could at least rely on them having tried to vet it and understand it and make sure that they, they got it right. But in a flat information surface, you don't get that at all. You, you, sort of, you end up having a lot of different facts that are directly counter to each other, and you have no great way of navigating. And that's much more problematic. And so what you should do is recreate the authority so you know what's actually, you know, wh who can actually stand up for this kind of content and who can guarantee this kind of content rather than try to remove the harm. If you could get to a place where people could publish with authority in a flat information surface and reintroduce these rugged landscapes, you could actually reduce the harm by doing that.
because the relative value of the information that's harmful would be severely reduced. Indeed. I can tell you it's a constant conversation in the Ericsson household when the kids come with some fantastical news that they've picked up somewhere and I'm trying to quiz them. Where where did you get that information on the internet? And it, it regularly turns out it wasn't a very useful source of information that they have consulted in that case. But coming back to sort of to this regulatory model itself, I mean, I think you're right. And I think this is important in the sense that most policymakers are too afraid to step in to provide new views on what should constitute legal or illegal use. I mean, that is a minefield. Instead, they find a convenient way to ask the big platforms in the private sector to do this for them, because in all, in all sort of shapes and forms, they already have a clear intention what they want to achieve. It's just that they can't achieve them themselves, so they... They, they ask the private sector to do that, and the the method they're using is the threat of having sort of a, a, a big penalty. And I mean, these penalties, at least as they are envisioned in the Digital Services Act and a few other regulations, they are quite substantial. We're talking about a significant part of global sales that could be fined unless they actually are going to comply with the regulations. Now, what I find more difficult to understand is, I mean, how on earth are this going to happen without that underlying tacit, unexpressed intention to become obvious? So if we if you think about here, then different ways and methods that you use as a social media platform, if you if you want to make sure that nasty political opinions are not going to be expressed on platforms, I mean, how how can you actually achieve that without going to mass censorship type? How can you do that without starting to monitor what actually individuals are doing? How individuals connect with each other online? If someone has expressed sort of a really off-piste comment about perhaps vaccines or any, and there are other issues somewhere, aren't these platforms going to find ways to connect that expression or that particular post to any other type of digital environment that they could be in, for instance, QAnon or platforms where people are discussing what they're going to do on January the 6th in Washington, D.C., when there's a rally in there to support Donald Trump. You know, I think it's interesting because if you're a platform, what you can do is that you can upgrade your content moderation guidelines and then you can start enforcing them. And you you only need to enforce them tiny bit to send a very strong signal that this kind of discussion is not something that we welcome on our platform. Now, that doesn't solve the problem, though, from the regulatory perspective, because if you can imagine... Even a random pattern of enforcement of a content guideline that says you can't discuss conspiracy theories online for some of the large platforms that they may engage in because they want to make sure that they're not subject to the fines you describe. Even a random enforcement pattern will send a signal to anyone who's dealing with that, that, oh, we're not welcome here. And I think that could actually lead to not a silencing of those views, but a mass exodus from those platforms. But that doesn't make them disappear. And this is the other great illusion, that if you sort of go with the very large platforms and you make sure that those platforms are are clean in the sense that they contain nothing that's harmful, at least, or harmful as it is defined currently, then that doesn't mean that these kinds of discussions disappear. It doesn't mean that the narratives around conspiracy theories disappear. 
it means that they move into other environments where it will be much, much harder to regulate them. They move into from social media to communications, back to communications. They move into you know, places like Signal or Telegram or Clubhouse or other places where conversations can be had and views can be expressed that continue to serve the same purpose. So this notion of displacement is absolutely crucial because if we think that we are addressing a problem in society by pushing out these views from some of the largest and most popular platforms, we are underestimating the resilience of the human mind. People tend just to move from one forum to another. And with that moves comes an increased sense of commitment and confirmation that the views that you hold are really important because you're being pushed off a mainstream platform. So I, I, I think that there is actually a way in which this could backfire quite badly because people move into encrypted channels. And then suddenly what you have to do is to say, well, I think we should really make sure that we dismantle encryption from some of the communication services out there so we can monitor what's happening. Now you're moving from a published, open, press-like website into what more or less is reminiscent of the telephony world, right? This is communication, person to person or person to 100 persons doesn't really matter. But when you're moving into that and you're asking to remove encryption in order to be able to police the content on these communication platforms, as people have been displacing, been displaced from social media platforms, you will end up in a situation that is, I think, also quite untenable and that won't work. And at that point, you no longer have the ability to engage with these communities to, to sort of prove these conspiracy theories wrong because they're all existing in a more or less opaque space. Yeah, and, and it's also, I mean, I read a while ago some research which I found pretty interesting, which is that if you look at the online environment and the way that users, not necessarily organizations, but users that engage with, you know, either information that it's seriously off piste, say on, you know, anti-vaxxers, for instance, or people that tend to have sort of a political viewpoint that is also on the extreme side. So if they were on Facebook, they may follow sort of other organizations there. They may follow different accounts of politicians or writers or opinion makers that they like. But they also have sort of a pretty large network of friends. And when they start to make a post about things, they usually get criticism. They will find sort of that, well, you know, it turned out that their neighbor was actually of a different opinion or that sort of a former work colleague that they had had sort of a, an online contact with was also of a different opinion and they get exposed to alternative views and that this process itself which is actually leading to better outcomes than most most policymakers think and that, that that exposure to alternative viewpoints are pretty important when you look at sort of the the large boilerplate type of platforms but when you step out and when you go on to you know me we parlor clubhouse signal telegram etc you, you lose that point. You lose that environment where you actually get exposed to alternative views. Yeah, and you end up in a soldier mind environment. It's a pure soldier mind environment. And what happens is that you feed group cohesion by adding to the conspiracy theory and by polarizing it even further. 
and and there is there is something about that that's deeply problematic. And I think it's interesting. There's a tension here that Simone Weil brought forward in her Need for Roots. And I think you and I have discussed this before. You know, in Need for Roots, she she writes about freedom of expression, and this is after the Second World War, and she's aware of what words can do and what speech can do, and she's sort of writing a moral constitution for France, if you will. And she thinks a lot about free expression, and and she starts the entire chapter by saying that we should have a space where it's possible to express any view, any statement, any sort of knowledge or hypothesis about the world. It should be completely free. And that's absolutely essential because otherwise the human spirit will wither and die. And then in the next sentence, she says, but if people intend horrible things that are harmful for other people, then they should be held responsible with the full force of the law for intending those horrible things. So it's the distinction between what you say and what you intend that she wants to make the, the sort of linchpin for any kind of, of regulation. And then she, she quips in the third paragraph in what I can only assume is a joke where she sort of says that obviously legally this will be a bit tricky, but the lawyers will have to figure it out. <laughs> She's like, well, hey, I don't know how, but sure. <laughs> so there is something about this that, that I think is, is really interesting because she realizes that if we do not have this open space where we can break views against each other, those views are going to be there anyway and they're not going to be scrutinized and they cannot be criticized. But at the same time, she feels so strongly, having seen what, what sort of speech can do, that if you intend, if you sort of put yourself behind this in some way, then you should be held responsible. And again, what she's asking for is some way of creating an accountability landscape in a flat information space, figuring out, you know, how can somebody stand up and say, this is my view, I intend this. Because if we could do that, then we could really have a discussion and break views against each other. And I think the, the notion that if we just remove all of this and none of it is available on the large platforms or the very large platforms, then we will get back to that rational citizen that we were dreaming of. That's far from what we uh, can see happening in terms of displacement, in terms of the development of closed networks, of opaque spaces, etc. So I do think that there is there, there are some underlying assumptions here that are really worthwhile thinking harder about. Indeed. And it's also underlying it in what, what you've just said, Nicholas, is also a, a very, very optimistic idea about man and the ability of man to be rational where i'd say sort of taking a more constrained view on on human nature and our ability to explore our own environments in the future as a human being i mean if, if we i think that so we are capable in managing trade-offs and we're capable in organizing our private life in a way which is pretty consistent in you know in, in a simple way so if we if we prefer A over B, then we're also going to prefer B over C. But that's different from sort of the highly romantic view of man who basically makes the, the underlying case that the perfect ability of, of humanity can be sort of achieved also by different sort of external factors, which is, in my view, is, it, it, it's a pretty naive. And it's interesting because there's something about that that's also at play in the network society, but in a way that's hidden. And that is that, that we tend to think that there's no difference between an individual human being connected to 160 other people and that individual human being connected to 2 billion people. And, yeah. and there's something something there that, that just doesn't sit right with me. 
I think that biologically, like Robin Dunbar suggests, you know, with this Dunbar number, we probably have a sort of maximum social network size that we can keep track of and work with and exist within. That is around 160, 200 people or so. And within that network, we think in a specific way. We're able to deliberate within that network. We can discover new information. And, and we're sort of being evolved to a point where we are really good at that kind of group cognition. That kind of social cognition with that kind of network size fits us really well. Now, what happens if you expand that network and you go to, you know, 160,000, or if you go to 1.6 billion people, is that suddenly something breaks. You're not as able to think together anymore. And the only thing that you can do really, really well with a large connected network, um, and you can really do this super well, is that you can spread information really fast. So if you go back to the sort of origins of free expression, you can ask this interesting question. You can say, okay, why do we care about free expression? What is it that's actually interesting about free expression? Why, why is this a core value of so many human rights frameworks? And, and you know, there's, the, there's the, the natural rights perspective, which is it's just, it's just is, stop asking the question. And then there's the more utilitarian perspective where you say, well, there are two functions here that are really important. One of them is discovery. You discover new ideas through free expression. You interact with the marketplace of ideas and you uncover new ideas and they're super important. And this is sort of the, the path that a lot of the defense for free expression took in the Anglo-Saxon world with Mill and then on with the U.S. Supreme Court and the First Amendment, that free expression is primarily about discovery. Now, there's another view of this, which is that free expression is extraordinarily important because that's how we gel together as a group through deliberation. When we deliberate, we become a society. It's through deliberation that we become a democracy. It's through deliberation that we solve our problems. So you have these two basic mechanisms in free expression. You have discovery and you have deliberation. Now, the challenge that we're facing, and this is a real challenge, is that technology has made discovery a hundred times more powerful, a thousand times more powerful, but it has done nothing for the mechanisms of deliberation. We still do not have better ways of deliberating than we did before we added the internet to our human societies. So then the response becomes, well, let's stop discovery. Let's make sure we remove all of the content and the harmful content and all the stuff out there so we get back to balance. That will never happen because discovery has been so boosted by technology it will never get it back by reducing discovery. So maybe we should think about that other option, which is to ask, how can we strengthen deliberation? Are there mechanisms of deliberation that we should be innovating in? Should we be thinking about how we can make decisions at scale, how we can make decisions in a fractured way at scale? Maybe what we need is sort of a fragmented network where decisions can be outsourced to smaller groups who can then work together in order to solve that. If we start thinking about deliberation as a technological, social technological problem, and start innovating there. Maybe what we can do is that we can increase our powers of deliberation just as we increase our powers of discovery. And you will, of course, understand that there's a parallel here with the scout and soldier mind. So the scout mind has become 100,000 times more powerful. The soldier mind remains focused on the smaller group and remains focused on social cohesion and has not developed into that larger, more powerful soldier mind that can create a larger group, a larger mechanism of deliberation. So I think... That's another alternative mental modeling that's happening, and it would suggest another set of solutions than the ones we're currently looking at. That's interesting. What, what would you say then if I, if I said, well, you know, that social technology discourse itself is probably 
become a bit more difficult of late, thinking about sort of cancel culture and these sort of issues, in a sense that we seem to struggle even more now with deliberation in human groups than we did in the past, with stronger intentions on at least sort of the extreme parts of the political conversation, both on the left and the right, to to basically censor what they deemed are unacceptable opinions to have, and that we shouldn't be able to have that open deliberation function in societies where we, we put forward ideas that we have, opinions we have, and, and we find ways to pragmatically solve problems that we all confronted with. Yeah, well, let's explore that together. I think that's such an interesting question. I think it's a, a fundamental question too, one that we really need to think more about. So, so let's go to, to deliberation and ask ourselves, what is it about deliberation that really makes it work? If you look at the public sphere, now, if discovery is the more American version here, deliberation is the public sphere, the Habermasian view of the world. It's sort of the more German, more European continental view of the world. It's sort of another ideal. What is it that's happening there? And what is what is the prerequisites for good deliberation? I think one of the prerequisites for good deliberation is actually a little bit less connection, a little bit less connection and a little bit of a more of a smaller group. When we try to deliberate across an entire network where we're tightly connected, it gets much harder because information spreads faster than the conclusions are drawn from information or the inferences or the deliberation around that information. And I think there is something really interesting about the structure and topology of our networks. If you remember, and you will have seen this, in sociology, there is this notion of six degrees of separation. Mm. You know, the societies naturally tend to six degrees of separation. And it's based on a series of different experiments that sort of recurringly got to six degrees of separation. That seemed to be where societies defaulted before we had the internet. Now, what happens with the internet is that that shrinks and you go down to 4.2 from 3.6 degrees of separation and you become more and more tightly connected and information flows faster and faster and there is a willingness for the soldier mind to get everything to sort of the lowest common denominator to get social group cohesion to one single view and we're so tightly connected that single view then then becomes anxious and it becomes sort of really heated we're, we're sort of that's where i think cancel culture comes from we're so tightly connected so we feel we all have to think the same thing and, and there's no room for us there's actually literally no degrees of separation that allow us to think differently to have different views so one one answer to your question would be you know maybe what it is maybe what we need is 10 percent less connection restoring a little bit of the distance that used to exist in human societies because we're biologically not hardwired for being so enormously connected as we are. And you can see this recurring. There are a couple of network theoreticians and computer scientists thinking about this now, saying, what, what if you only could have 300 friends in a social network? What if the maximum space of people in a conversation was 200? What if you put a cap on the number of relationships you had? Or if you, if you sort of removed your shadow relationships, all of the people who are in your network listening to you but never saying anything the sort of the lurking shadow of your social networks we all have them i mean you probably have tons of friends on facebook that never say anything to you or you not say anything to them but they're present there and in some ways they're sort of affected by you and they they listen to what you say and you know what if that disappeared and what we did was that we had a having time if you haven't interacted with somebody for two months they fall away and they're no longer your friends or six months or something like that depending on how much you've interacted with them before there are solutions there 
that actually allow us to create a little bit more of distance and experiment with what happens if we reintroduce more degrees of separation. And it's it's an interesting question that's come up in this in, in sort of a, a series of different books recently. And there's this other book that I just ordered to read over the summer. So this might be horrible, but I haven't read it yet. So it might be a horrible tip. But but I, I was intrigued just by the title of that book because I thought it was so interesting. It was called 10% Less Democracy. So 10% less democracy. What would happen if we had that? I, I, think, I think it's such an interesting thought. And I think there is something about that that sort of really resonates with me. 10% less connection, 10% less democracy in the sense that everyone has to have influence over everything. And there's, there's, there's a, and, and I don't think that needs to be an elitist response, by the way, to be very clear. I actually think that, that democracy might survive better with 10% less democracy and that the fundamental institutions of democracy might be much better if they were slightly more disconnected, which is a weird, I mean, it's a, it's a weird hypothesis, but I'll put it out there just because your question is so interesting. I think it's one we really should explore. Yeah, no, and I'm, I, can, I can see sort of the logic where you're going. I mean, and, and it seems to me that there are two fundamental bases for it. I mean, one, one of them would be that if you create environments where you are almost mandatory exposed to not necessarily different opinions, but to different personalities, your bandwidth for accepting alternative viewpoints are probably going to get larger. So, I mean, this comes down to, I mean, it's, it's um, you will know this, it's, it's an argument that has been put forward by people in, in our mother country, Sweden, about why we should introduce military conscription again, sort of mandatory military service, because then you're forced to to engage with people that you otherwise wouldn't meet in your life. And I think there is some truth to that, even if it doesn't lead me to favor having having sort of mandatory <laughs> military service. But I think there is some truth to that. I mean, you can see it operating in different other parts of your life as well. The, the other approach would be sort of looking at the network size of it is that, so if you reduce the size of your network, you're less exposed to reputational risk. And to me, it seems sort of cancel culture and a lot of the fear that exists in public debate right now is very much connected to your own reputational risk, the risk that you use a, a term, a phrase, or that you express an opinion that isn't really off piste, but it, it may not sort of sort of be with a grain of, of acceptable political thought in some institutions right now. And then you get sort of a tribal effect in the sense that the same type of people tend to occupy the same institutions, etc. But it's if, if you reduce the size of your network, the risk for expressing an opinion or a viewpoint which goes against the grain of, of your peer group will get smaller because at least there will be an alternative peer group that you can choose to enter instead, right? And I think also your need to defend your own identity becomes slightly less strong because at that point you are who you are within that lower network and you're not competing when it comes to other people in that network for the construction of an identity. What I think happens is when we become too connected, we, we sort of tend to, to try to impose our identity on others. And again, it's a soldier mind at work. It wants social group cohesion. At the price of group cohesion is a certain uh, singularity of thought. And so the soldier mind makes us more tightly connected and we all want to be the same. We want to have the same identity. And that means that we have to eradicate that which makes our own identity impossible. 
if groups were smaller, we wouldn't feel that because we could use different sources of identity. I think when you get a single source of identity and it's just a single place like the internet or a social media platform, that single source of identity then becomes absolutely essential to you. If you have multiple sources, if you're sort of polycentric in the way that you create your identity, and I think most people were in those slightly less connected networks. You had more centers of, of your identity than now. And your identity is collapsing into that flat information space. I think that's a point at which you would be able to, to accommodate other views without feeling that your own identity was, was in some way at stake. And I do tend to think that this this drive towards conformity is extraordinary in how how it sort of assumes a global view. It assumes a global view of how things should be that in itself denies any cultural differences or any cultural respect where different cultures may have thought differently or different cultures may have arrived at different ways of cutting an issue where it's not necessarily about one you know, one culture disagreeing with another. It's against your ability. You can't compare them in a meaningful way. And we seem to be very sort of, there's a monocultural tendency there that I think could actually come from two tightly connected networks. And it's, again, it's a, it's a hypothesis and we should be really clear with it. There's sort of, there's a lot to be thought about there. But I think that if you force people into too close connection, their soldier minds will go at work and they'll try to figure out what's the group identity we can arrive at here and how can we make sure that it's an identity that I feel comfortable with. Yeah, no, indeed. And I think it also connects with this, what you just expressed, which is this notion that there is one universal view that everyone should accept or perhaps that everyone already, at least not, not everyone, but almost everyone already holds it. And I think that's that's some of the sort of, I mean, the most insidious part, I think, that comes with cancel culture and sort of this intoleration of dissent that we see both on the left and the right. I think it's the shaming part of it that, that annoys me, which is that the, the method here is basically that they want to shame people into cohesion, into conformity, that the viewpoint they're trying to come across is that you know, the view that you just expressed, it's so nasty that you are the only person on earth that actually holds it. So it's that stigmatization of, of different viewpoints, which, of course, it's, it's wrong in the first place because thousands or millions of people, perhaps even billions of people are going to hold the same opinions. But it's also the soldier's mind's way of excising someone from the group identity, right? It's saying that the view you hold is such that your identity makes you incompatible with the group identity that you're building. Yeah. It's a way to excise somebody from the community. And I think that part of it, you know, that's shaming has been the basic mechanism for doing that. The way shame works historically, you know, if you look at the ethnology and anthropology of shame, that's what shame does. It sort of excises you from community in different ways. And and it will be, you know, if you look at some societies, it's it's by simply not pretending that person exists or not seeing them or not acknowledging them when they come into the room, which is, which is, you know, makes me think that this is not a new phenomenon, but it's a recurrence of a phenomenon that tribes have used forever in order to create their group identity. And, and it's deeply human, so we should understand it. And I think it happens much more rarely in a tribe that's smaller and not connected to everyone else than a, a tribe that's much larger where this becomes a harder problem because everyone has to be sort of shaped to the community uh, standard yeah indeed something else which isn't new at least we've been here before is that 
we have experimented with and developed new institutions in order to deal with polarization, disinformation, or other things that may come in the wake of new technology and new forms of communication. I mean, you will have followed this debate a lot closer than most other people have done. Now we have new experiments like, for instance, the oversight board by Facebook. Some are calling it the Supreme Court of Facebook. I think sort of you can find ways to criticize it, but still, I think it's an interesting way of trying to experiment with new institutions that can help us to deal with some of these issues in the future. Because it seems to me sort of that the regulator's mind that we're talking about, that's not a desirable path uh, for the future. We don't want to have governments being the arbiter of truths and that they increasingly are going to become even more granular in describing what platforms, perhaps even what other media needs to do in order to censor out views that they don't think is acceptable. The other way, which I so you can sometimes hear from some ideologues or some politicians, which is that there shouldn't be any blockages at all, that in America or in Europe, you should actually force Facebook or YouTube or Twitter to carry the opinions of every person, regardless what type of opinion that express. I think you started this conversation, or perhaps it was uh, in the conversation we had before the recording, by saying that even people, thinkers like John Stuart Mill, would anchor the concept of the freedom of speech or the freedom of expression in an institutional setting. And I think this surely is what we need to look at today, right? How we can experiment with new institution building in the online environment in order to get to the type of solution which provides a balance here between, on the one hand, making sure that we're not censoring political opinions, but on the other hand, that there is no obligation either for Facebook or any other platform to carry opinions that they think are harmful or wrong. Yeah, no, I, I think... I... A way to express it is to say that this is an institutional moment in the history of internet social communication that mirrors the institutional moment that we saw in the early press. So if you go to, for example, the US and you look at the early press and the, the sort of yellow papers and you look at what happened in Philadelphia and Ben Franklin and all of the pamphlets that were printed, there's a reason that George Washington referred to the early press as infamous scribblers. There's a great book, I think, by Eric Burns called The Infamous Scribblers that details this early press and its lack of institutions. And, and when you read it, you sort of laugh out loud because it's essentially a, a perfect description of the blogosphere that then turned into the social media platforms. And, and over time then what happened with the social communication in the press the sort of preceding wave of technology that allowed us to, to have mass communication through through newspapers was that they developed institutions and over time they developed standards and they developed sort of this institutional setting or framework in which they could understand free expression much better and the limits would be inherent in the institutions rather than in the legislation and I think, you know, that then led to, to respectable newspapers like we, we talked about the Philadelphia Inquirer, but you have the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. All of their respectability uh, comes from an institutional evolution that took hundreds of years to get to. Now, I think we can be much faster when it comes to the Internet space, but I don't think that we should underestimate the amount of time it takes for this to develop. And I think it's, it's interesting because I think this institutional moment is really an opportunity 
for platforms or anyone else who's interested in, in internet as a means of social communication to free up themselves from the legislative pressures by tying their own hands in the institutional framework. And it's a paradoxical concept because what it means is that if you restrict yourself through institutional commitment, you actually free yourself from legislative pressure. And I think this equation hasn't fully, it's not resonating fully with everyone in this space yet, but I absolutely believe that what you say is true, that the institutional moment is here and we need to figure out how to deal with it. And, you know, Facebook's Supreme Court or Oversight Board or whatever you call it should not be met with a yes, but, but should be met with a yes, and. How do we expand this? How do we build this? How do we think about this? And I think there's a lot left here to do, but I would not be surprised if, you know, if we have this conversation in another 15 years, I think we would say, well, obviously that's what happens because that's what happened with all form of social communication. When new technology enters the scene, it needs to arrive at an institutional moment where it recreates the boundaries of what is what is permissible and not permissible. And it ties its own hands in order to not be subject to the much more blunt instrument of legislation. So if we start by sort of looking back a little bit in history to that episode that you mentioned with the press, the Yellow Press, Benjamin Franklin, the Tower of Truth, etc. What was it that they were doing that helped to basically make the press respectable? Was it the press itself that did it? Was it readers who did it? What, what, what happened? Well, I think there were two things that happened. One was readers. So what happened was that the early press space had an enormous amount of different publishers and different papers and pamphlets, etc. It was sort of a plethora of different outlets. And what happened over time was that a few of them became more professional. A few of them become more heavy in the way that they sort of did their research and they became more authoritative over time. They built a rugged landscape of authority on what was essentially a flat information space from the beginning. And so that is one thing that happens. The other thing that happens that I think is important is that people become much more selective in the way that they consume information. It is not just about the structure of the institutional framework. It's also about the responsibility of the individual, the way we exercise our agency. Newspaper readers took pride in reading newspapers that were of certain quality. And so it started this benign, virtuous circle where people want to read newspapers that have higher status and higher authority and sort of really can, can give you more qualitative information. And at that point, the market responds and creates that. And the institutions that control that the information, that provide the yardstick for quality and authoritativeness are, are then strengthened by that whole process. And I think that takes time, you know, but I think that that's, that's roughly what happened. And I think that the other thing that happened was that the industry itself realized that if we're going to compete on quality, let's agree on the standards. Let's make sure the yardstick is one against which we all can measure up. So there is a yardstick that we can then share with the legislature and that we can then share with our consumers so that they know how we're holding ourselves accountable. That becomes an enormously powerful tool in building a much more reputable industry. So we had sort of on the one hand, if we think about that hierarchy then or the sort of the new authority, we had creation like, you know, the Pulitzer Prize for journalism. Yeah, we the had... professionalization of journalists is actually a huge part of this. That's a good point. The equivalence of the society of editors, sort of more self-regulatory type of bodies that help to yeah. establish a standard and a norm for 
what is good and bad forms of journalism. But then sort of the, the, the other point that you made, I think, is very interesting. And I'm curious to hear what the equivalent of this would be for the online world, because, I mean, there is agency here. And of course, there is something else which is obvious, which is that as a user or as a reader of newspaper, I prefer to read newspapers that actually delivers me the truth rather than newspapers <laughs> that delivers, you know, pure entertainment. And in that entertainment, they, they make up things about what is going on in the world. Because there is an obvious advantage of getting exposed to the truth, which is I, I'm, I'm much more capable of orienting myself in the world where I live if I'm accessing news which is true rather than news that are made up, right? I think that's right. And I think that there is a balance here between the quality of news, the fidelity of the identity that you seek. So... That you want an identity. If, if you're a sort of a Telegraph reader, you're a Telegraph reader. If you're a Guardian reader, you're a Guardian reader. If you're a reader of the Wall Street Journal, you're a reader of the Wall Street Journal, etc. There's an identity element to this that we should not forget. So you're still serving the soldier mind. So the fidelity to identity is important, but you're also serving the scout mind by making sure that the quality of the news is high enough. And so what you end up with is this sort of interesting balancing act where you can't just go full soldier mind and just tell people what they want to know because in the long run that doesn't fly uh, because you, you need the utility of qualitative news to your point. But on the other hand, you can't just do quality. You can't just focus on quality because if you have no fidel fidelity to identity, then you're not getting that other piece that you need. So I think that there's a balance between the two that emerges over time. And it's, it's really interesting that it emerged to the point, I mean, we could ask with some wonderment how we could arrive at a standard and you know some people will laugh at this because they don't believe in mainstream media etc but i think that's wrong so how we arrive at the standard where, where quality coexists with fidelity to identity and i think that's that's sort of something that happens over time and that this did happen i think is a reason to go back to your earlier comment to actually be quite optimistic about man we didn't just go for fidelity to identity, we actually also wanted quality that was in the demand structure. And that this happened, I think, is something that gives us good hope for the future. Indeed. So what would be the equivalent of that for the online world right now? I mean, I've, I've had sort of a, an idea that I've told anyone who I know who works for Facebook, which is that they shouldn't sort of introduce mandatory Moder moderation tools themselves. They should ask their users to pay for having access to a moderation tool which helps them to distinguish what is sort of true news and what is sort of made up news because that gives the user the agency that they are making the choices that they actually want to get exposed to things that are true rather than things that are just made up. I think there's a corollary to that that I would go with which I think is is controversial but interesting. And that is currently all of the filtering happens at the core of the network, which means that the social platform has internalized the filtering mechanism and it's trying to filter for everyone equally. That means that you get absolutely no identity. So people recreate identity by simply creating their own public spheres in which they, in a polarized way, will consume certain kinds of information. Now, if you, instead of having all of the filtering at the core, if you sort of, instead of internalizing this, if you externalize it and had it at the edges of the network, so that you, when you sort of, you fire up your social media platform, if it's Facebook or whatever else it is, and then you pick someone who delivers and curates your social media feed. And that's someone that you trust. And it can be, you know, an entirely new brand. Let's say it's sort of 
Frederick Erikson daily and, and it's curated by you or it's curated by a city and a city has sort of this curating filter that, that really goes through and sort of has its own automatic algorithms as well as some hand handheld curation that brings you that particular social media feed. And then that's one thing. If you're more interested in another, then you can do the same thing. And then suddenly what you open up is this competition between quality and fidelity to identity. Instead of internalizing it in the core, you push it to the edges to create this, this sort of diversity of different kinds of interfaces, really, against the, the entire information space. And there you can also recreate the rugged landscape of authority. So those kinds of innovations, I think, will absolutely be coming down the pike because the idea that all of the filtering should sit at the center, the idea that also underpins a lot of the legislation today, is not obvious if you think about it. No, indeed. And I was going to ask this also as my final question, Niklas. I mean, sort of this runs counter to the entire philosophy behind the regulation, which seems to be organized around sort of a monocentric worldview where you have an old hierarchy. You can, you can actually sort of impose an editor of the Internet who is going to control and censor what type of information that will feed through to individuals. That seems to me to be a completely misguided view about what we need to do because in the first place it assumes a, a sort of capability from the central core the central hub itself which it's simply never going to have but the other the other thing is that it takes away agency it takes away the responsibility from the individual to actually make sure that i want to have a feed i want to get exposed to information about the world which comes from credible sources yeah and in that point, you're sort of you're leaning again towards that other model that we talked about in the beginning. You're leaning to Plato's noble lie. You're sort of semi-paternalistically trying to impose a certain view on people by making sure that there's a editor of the internet, where you really want a plurality of editors. You want different kinds of interfaces created at the edges of the network that allow people to suddenly compete with quality of news or quality of information, really. It's all kinds of information and the fidelity to identity and sort of find the competitive balance between the two where you continue to develop those over time. And I think, you know, Richard Allen, who's a good friend, uh, often talks about that we're heading towards editorship. And, and you know, the, the way that he thinks about this is that the social media platforms will be be forced to become editors. Now, they could turn this into a business opportunity and open up a layer on top of the social media platform for editing. And that would create an entirely new market for news papers or journalists or anyone else who wanted to curate this. Currently, we see a lot of curation happening completely disconnected from platforms and people have newsletters, for example. The entire newsletter industry is a way to try to curate the internet in different ways for people and help them find the right things. And that means that there is this need for curation. There's a demand for curation that's currently not being met in the way that we're setting up our content moderation guidelines. So content moderation is essentially you know, very bad curation. <laughs> so you want to turn it around. You don't want to remove the stuff that you don't want people to see. You want to promote the stuff that they themselves are interested in because they want that quality information paired with fidelity to their identity. And so you want to sort of turn this around. And instead of having a negative view where you say, look, we're just going to remove all the bad stuff and people will become good citizens again, is let's give them the means to be good citizens, to require and demand the internet that they want, and then use that in order to further their understanding of the world and act politically. That's the kind of development that we want to, to enforce. And I think we're getting stuck again and again and again in a, a mindset where we're removing the bad instead of thinking of how we can increase the good 
It's like discovery and deliberation. It's the same thing. Not remove the capacity of discovery, but boost the capacity of deliberation. And so there, there are all of these things that sort of is a recurring pattern because I think we've gotten stuck in a tech clash mindset where we start to think about technology as a problem rather than as a, a means of creating better solutions. Not a better solution in itself, not solutionism, as Evgeny Nibmo-Rosa would say, but but a means to create those solutions together with people on the basis of our fundamental values. Very good. On that optimistic note, Nicholas, we're going to end. And if you <laughs> consider to have an alternative career as a creator on Facebook, I'm more than happy to pay my subscription fee to you, Nicholas. <laughs> You're very kind. I'm going to pay mine to yours as well. We get a, well, Then we can build a small empire, I think, of, <laughs> of new edge curation on social networks if you ever tire of your excellent work in the think tank. Well, thank you. It's been a great time talking to you, Nicholas, as always. Thank you so much.